welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, editor-at-large for LARB, and I'm joined in the studio today by my co-host, Medea Ocher, LARB's I, managing editor. Oh, ooh, I, I jumped, I jumped the in there. <laughs> hey, jumped Kate. the gun there. Hi, Medea. And today we're talking with Monique Trung. Yeah. Monique is a, as a novelist, and her latest book is called The Sweetest Fruits. And it's a historical novel. It is about a writer that I'd actually never heard of before, um, Patricio Lafcadio Hearn, who's a 19th century writer. And his story is actually not totally central to the book itself. The book is actually about three women in his life, his mother, Rosa, his first wife, Alethea, and then his second wife, Koizumi Setsu, which is when he moved to Japan. And as far as I can tell, that's really the work that he's most famous for, work on Japanese culture. Mm -hmm. And Monique's book, we should say, it's a very sensual novel. As she says, she talks a lot about food, which is always fun to read about. But the other thing that I thought I think is really interesting about it is, and something that I think about a lot, is the women who make work possible, essentially, and who make a writer's work possible. And that's just something I've thought about for a really long time. And this book kind of articulates that into being as a an actual something to think about. And Yeah, it's true. I, I think you're right, Dea, and that those people's stories aren't often told. They kind of get funneled into the, the people who write their own stories. Um, so this book is a corrective to that, and it's a very voice-driven book. And these narratives kind of languishing and these women just telling the story of their lives, taking their time. It's beautiful. It is. Well, let's get to it. Let's talk to Monique. Wonderful. We have Monique Trung with us today on the line. Monique is a Vietnamese-American author. She's the writer of the best-selling novels, The Book of Salt, Bitter in the Mouth, and her latest book is called The Sweetest Fruits. Came out recently in September. This is what her website says. I just like this. I'm going to include it. She is a former refugee, an essayist, avid eater, lyricist, and librettist, and, surprise, an intellectual property attorney, more or less in this order, she writes. Monique, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. And congratulations on your book. Thank you. Thanks. So, Monique, this book is about, and I would argue also not about, the writer Lafcadio Hearn. For listeners who aren't familiar with his work, just tell us a little bit about him. And I'm really curious why he was someone you wanted to use as a connective figure in this novel. Lafcadio Hearn is an Irish Greek author who lived from 1850 to 1904. And what he's really known for is his sort of introduction of Japanese fairy tales, folklore, and ghost stories to the West. And he's pretty much considered one of the first Western experts in those narratives. But that's not how I first came to him. I am pretty much food obsessed. If the titles of my novels are not, if you can't tell already from that. So 
I came to him through a food angle. One of the things that he is known for in the U.S. and in particular in New Orleans is that he is considered the author of the very first Creole cookbook to be published in the United States. And it's called La Cuisine Creole. And that is really how I first heard of him. And I read his cookbook. And I thought he was pretty much full bull. And I kind of wanted to know more about him and how he went from Creole cuisine to Japanese ghost stories. Interesting. Did you say that you thought he was full of bull? Yeah, I did. <laughs> why did you think that when you read the book? Well, there were a couple of reasons why. But primarily, it's because he was very much a man of his time and of his era. He wrote in his introduction that women were not as good of cooks as men because men were more scientifically minded and therefore were more precise in the kitchen. He wrote this book just less than 10 years after the Civil War, and yet he did not once mention African Americans or formerly enslaved people, or of course then he would have used the term slaves, and their contribution to the Southern Kitchen. Not one reference. There were just so many blinders that he had But like I said, he was a man of his time. Perhaps I expected too much from him. But still, I wanted to know more about him, even though I felt that he was pretty much flawed (laughs) as a cook and a cookbook author. (laughs) And so instead of telling his story straight on, you tell the story through women in his life. And I wouldn't say they are central figures in his life, but they're themselves very much at the periphery of history. Lafcadio O'Hearn is remembered still, but, you know, I wouldn't say any of these women. His mother and his two wives are known to history now. So it's interesting that you're drawn to him and then you notice this omission of mentioning women or giving women much space. And then in retaliation, you decide to focus on the women in his life. <laughs> and I notice this is kind of a idea that you've used in some ways in your first novel as well, telling the story of someone who worked for Gertrude Stein and Alice B. Toklas. So these kind of more peripheral characters, I'd love for you to talk about that narrative structure and how you make those stories. As I started to read more about Hearn, it was really the women in his life who emerged for me as more interesting characters. And His mother and his first wife, for instance, did not have access to the written word. And so they, I knew, couldn't have left behind correspondence or journals or, you know, clearly not books. That would have been a first-person account of how they were in the world, how they saw the world, and how they saw Hearn. And yet the biographers who wrote about Hearn were so 
I would use the word adamant in their characterizations of these women. The biographers often would write about Hearn's mother, for example, Rosa as being petulant and childish, and Alethea was actually also often characterized in the same way. And my question then, and my question still, is who gave them this story? Them meaning the biographers. Mm -hmm. Whose account were they relying upon in order to write about these women in this way? And it just seemed highly improbable (laughs) and up for a lot of questioning the biographers' account of these women. And so I thought it only fair and fitting to invite these women and their voices into the room, to the table, and ask them or to imagine how they interacted with this man, how they saw this man, because they were present, and yet their voices are not. And in turn, you know, Lopcati O'Hearn is not as present. He's the connective force and the kind of fulcrum through which we learn the story of these women. But it's not, I don't get the feeling that your book is trying to give us a deep sense of his life. Would you say that's true? I think that that is true because, you know, if who you really want to understand is Hearn, then he has had the privilege of writing (laughs) and leaving to history volumes of correspondence over, you know, almost 30 books. You know, he's had his say. And if that's who you're truly interested in, then I invite you to go to his work. But What interested me about Hearn was really something that is, I think, he couldn't have truly had access to and written about, which is who he was through the eyes of these women, which is very different, I think, from his account of himself that has come down to us in history. And I think you had asked earlier, what drew me to this man? And yes, certainly it was, I saw him first through the lens of food and cookbooks, but really what made me stay with him for eight years and to stay with the women in his life is that I sensed in him a hunger, a hunger to find home. And that I relate to. That I could understand in a very visceral way, because I feel that I have that same hunger. And I wanted to know what kept this man searching. What made him travel all the way to Japan in the hopes of finding home? That's so interesting that you say that. Can you talk a little bit about your hunger for home? How do you think about that? How do you characterize it? Mm. Well, I came to the U.S. as a refugee when I was six, almost seven. And I find that 
because the decision to leave and to come here to the U.S. was not mine to make. I, as an adult, am always intrigued by stories of people who choose or seemingly choose to displace themselves, to place themselves within a culture that's not their own, in a language that's not their own, and how how they, in turn, conceive of home or construct the notion of home. And for me, hunger is, I use that word very purposefully because I, as a child, certainly, and now I think it's the same, that a lot of that notion of home is through the belly, Mm. (laughs) through the mouth, into the Mm -hmm. belly, you know, And I think that's true with many immigrants and migrants that one of the easiest and perhaps one of the only way to recreate home is through the foods that we consume and that we can sort of place on our table. I'm going to talk more about the immigrant experience in a little bit, but since we're on this topic of food and, of course, yes, reading this book, it just right away and you talk about sea urchins like egg yolks and oysters and bread and just sweet almonds. I mean, there's just every page has some kind of sensual evocation and sounds delicious and little babies getting honey dipped in their mouths. And, um, you know, I think that there's some kind of snobbery sometimes with sensual, especially when it comes to food with that kind of detail but it can be so evocative. And you say that you are inspired by food and that it does have a connection to where you're from. Maybe just talk about, you know, what, how that part of your writing has been received. Like I noticed that your event here in Los Angeles, you'll be speaking with a chef. So mm. your ties to this whole other genre, which is food writing itself. Right. Well... One, I would say that I'm not inspired by food, but I'm obsessed. (laughs) (laughs) It's a stronger (laughs) pull (laughs) than the average bear. (laughs) What does that mean? What does that mean? (laughs) That means that I think I truly understand the world through food and flavors and people who cook and and food ways. I think I also understand history better when I can attach it to foods and ingredients. Mark Kurlansky's salt, for example. I think that for me was a history book that finally landed in my brain that is like a sieve sometimes when it comes to facts and details. I really am. This is how I truly understand the world. Certainly, it's I want to talk to people like Dip Tran, who's the chef and former owner of Good Girl Dinette in Los Angeles and in San Francisco. I'm going to be talking to Saleya Ho, who's the new San Francisco Chronicle food reviewer and a chef herself. 
I think we belong to, I would say, the same tribe. There is a certain, it's difficult to characterize, but I would say there's a certain, at once, generosity and also curious way of approaching the world that cooks and food writers have. And often, I think, it comes down not to food, but to a certain kind of hunger that's in us. And that hunger is not a literal hunger. It's often the desire to find something that feels like a home. Mm. And of course, I mentioned those two women because they're both Vietnamese-American women. And perhaps what I need to add to this equation is that food writers and cooks and chefs who are migrants and immigrants and refugees themselves, that also adds to the idea of hunger that I'm talking about. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, recorded at Emerson College in the heart of Hollywood. We've been speaking with Monique Trung, author most recently of The Sweetest Fruits. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first we have this week's book recommendation. We're excited to have Stephen Van Dyke back in the studio with us today to give us this week's book recommendation. Stephen is the author of the experimental memoir, People I've Met from the Internet. Hi, Stephen. Hi. Okay, so Stephen, what book do you have to recommend for us? I recommend Joe Brainerd's I Remember. Mm. Can you tell us a little bit about it? He wrote it in the early 70s, and it's a list of I Remembers. And through it, you get a sense of the author and also the time period. And it also gets you thinking, like, what would my I Remembers be? Well, I can tell that that would be particularly appealing to you because when you were on the show earlier, you talked about your lifelong love of lists. Yes. Right? So that's obviously very relatable content. Yeah. And it was really a groundbreaking thing that he did. And It's nonfiction or is it fiction? Or both? It's nonfiction. I mean, I guess you would call it a memoir. Like a memoir told in lists? Yeah. Of what he remembers? Yeah. And... Another thing I like about it is that it's really accessible. I sometimes use it in teaching creative writing to students Mm. because then they can take the same idea and apply it to their own lives. And so instead of these references to like the 50s and 60s, we have like, I remember Sega Genesis. (laughs) I remember, you know, Pokemon. Yeah. (laughs) How did you first encounter this book? I'm not sure. I think someone told me that what I was working on reminded them of it. Mm. And then I was like, wow, this is amazing. This is so good. All right. And now you're paying it forward to all of us. Yes, definitely. So Stephen, can you give us the author and title one more time, please? Joe Brainerd, I Remember. All right. Thank you so much. We've been speaking with Stephen Van Dyke, author of People I've Met from the Internet. Thank you, Stephen. Thanks for having me. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Monique Trunk, author of The Sweetest Fruits. 
How has this aspect of your work been received? Because I think there's something, I can imagine almost this Victorian fear of a woman's appetite and um, this <laughs> kind of frank embrace of, um, of this, you know, deep sensual pleasure that, that is also kind of policed in our, at least in America, mm. because everyone's so paranoid about food and weight and um, enjoying, you know, just enjoying yourself. So have you ever gotten right. any flack for your focus on food? I'm, I'm pretty certain I've been dismissed. But I think what I often go back to is one of my favorite American writers and essayists is M.F.K. Fisher. Mm. And she was a food writer. This is how she's characterized. And when I remember reading that she was often asked, why didn't she write about love and war and power and these larger themes like, you know, that other writers write about? Why would she write about food and flavor and eating? Of course, the answer is that when she writes about food and cooking and flavor, she is writing about all those other topics. It's through just a different set of lenses. For me, the the concern in the beginning was really not uh, for me that someone would read my writing and say, oh, you know, this is, this is it wasn't about my gender. It was rather my concern was that because I was an Asian American writer, that to write about food would be seen as a way to placate or to make less exotic or to make more exotic the subject matters that were of interest to me. And when I say that, I'm referencing the fact that, you know, Asian American authors were often chosen and published initially in the U.S. because of their focus on food. Mm. And so I didn't want to place myself within that tradition. But then I realized, you know, there's a reason. There's a reason why I personally am always thinking of food and why food has such power and meaning to me. And I wasn't going to erase that part of myself in order to produce a piece of writing that seems more legitimate or more literary. You know, this is not why I write. I write because I want to share with the world what is important to me. And in this book, you inhabit really interesting and very different perspectives because these three women, so the first is uh, Hearn's mother and she's Greek sort of, I mean, um, eventually it's a Greek island. The second is his first wife, Alethea. And then the third is his Japanese wife. Now, how did you go about getting into the minds? Because not only are these women different in terms of their experiences, in terms of the lives that they lead, but they're different in terms of the historical era and that they, I mean, not wildly different, different, obviously, but that they are come from different historical eras and you're, this is historical fiction. So how did you, how did you inhabit these particular um, lives and, and these, the minds of these women? 
Well, the voices are so different, as you say. Yeah. And it's, um, let's begin with Rosa, right? Rosa uh, was born on one of the Ionian islands. She was actually characterized by Lafcadio O'Hearn as being oriental. Mm. And I thought that was fascinating, the shifting notion of who belongs to the Orient Mm -hmm. and why that was very important to him. He wrote, for example, that all that was good in him was because of his Oriental mother. Mm. (laughs) And all that was, you know, his father was something that he wanted to dismiss and erase. So here was a man who was a both Right. Mm-hmm. If you're if you're going to buy into the binary of Oriental versus Occidental, he belonged to both worlds. But what he wanted to focus on was the what he perceived as being the older world, the more the world that was belonged to the feminine. Earlier, I had mentioned that the biographers talked about Rosa, you know, in a very dismissive way. She's petulant, she's childish, she had tantrums. And so I wanted to have a better sense of what her life must have been like before she met Lafcadio Hearn's father. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, the research that I did was, you know, sort of the very sort of basic research that one would do, which is to understand what life was like for the women of her socioeconomic class, of her island. And one of the very first things that I found was that they were often sequestered within their homes until they were married. So that contradicted squarely another story that's often told about Hearn's father and mother, which is that father, or the the soon-to-be father, uh, would-be father, saw Rosa walking on on the streets of the village Mm. and approached her and introduced himself, and that's how they met. Well, given that most women of her class were sequestered within the home and would have never been on the streets walking alone, already, that's a big red flag, right? Right, right. That told me that that narrative that has been passed down is more likely to be implausible, if not plain wrong. So then I had, you know, then... I imagined what her life would have been, which is the home and the church, and then the spaces, the moments in between those two spaces that she occupied, how how would she have seen this this Irishman, Mm -hmm. this surgeon? How would it have been possible? And would it have been her who approached this man? Because that seems to be more likely. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's some of the questions that I, and some of the sort of spaces that I kind of, or imaginative spaces that I, I kind of went to in order to understand 
her, the possible stories for her. And Rose was not uh, allowed to go to school, did not have a tutor. She had the church. That's where her education took place. Mm -hmm. And so I have to imagine also for her other places, other sort of possible tutors in life. And that would be other women. And so that hopefully gives you some idea of how I began with Rosa. But I'll tell you, I'll tell you with Rosa and with Alethea, the one thing that I did not do was I did not approach them from a position of privilege, Mm -hmm. meaning I didn't assume that because I could read and write that I somehow had a better grasp of narrative or storytelling than they did, mm-hmm. than they did, or that somehow their ability to tell their own story would have been lesser. So um, that was important and key to being able to imagine their relationship to to storytelling. Mm-hmm. And I just wanted to tell you about Alethea because Alethea's story is actually, um, I based it on two documents. <laughs> and they both, uh, they both appeared in the Cincinnati newspaper. One was the Cincinnati Commercial and one was the Cincinnati Inquirer. The first one was actually a feature article that Lafcadio O'Hearn wrote about Alethea once they um, were married at this point um, and he wrote essentially a feature article about her. He didn't mention her by name but he identified her as a boarding house cook and he says that he refers to himself in the third person. The reporter is sitting on a um, the back steps of a boarding house, and the cook is telling the reporter ghost stories. Mm-hmm. And he describes her, and then he puts the the majority of the article in quotes, meaning that he was trying to replicate her voice. Mm-hmm. And what is very telling about that piece is that Hearn doesn't write her voice in the same sort of dialect slash pigeon English that he used and assigned for his other African-American subjects. He gave her a voice that was detailed, rich, meaning that she, as she's telling her st- these ghost stories, she's talking about, uh, you know, the, the trees, the, the bushes, the, the sounds of the birds. I mean, she is truly, if we are to believe her, and she is truly a storyteller who takes in her entire sort of landscape. Mm. And that, so I took that, and and try to follow, to really sort of respect that spirit, that voice. And the second article was in the Cincinnati Inquirer in 1906, and it's an interview with her. 
And so is, wait, I'm so, are, I'm so sorry to interrupt you, but is she the one who inspired him to, you know, start collecting ghost stories? Did his wife, is his wife responsible for that? You know, I don't think so. I think his interest in ghost stories predated her. But I think you're absolutely right, though, if the suggestion is that, and I took it, I made this assumption that one of the reasons why Hearn was so attractive to Alethea was because of, he, he called her a ghost seer. Mm. So she clearly had some relationship to ghost stories, if and perhaps even more than that. But uh, it's clear, you know, from the fact that she, he respected his her storytelling ability. He says of her that uh, she was charming and that he couldn't attempt to do justice to her voice. All of this is in the, the feature article about her. Mm. So it's clear why she or rather, it was clear why he was attracted to Alethea Foley. Mm -hmm. What I needed to know was why Alethea Foley would be attracted to her. Hmm, that's interesting. Um, right. Um, right? I, I just did, we just, we only have a little time left, and I just wanted to ask you, um, this is a, a story with various forms of immigration in it, but they're subtle in that we don't, it's not presented exactly in the kind of way that we think of as in the, the immigrant story. And I would say your first novel, maybe similarly, kind of changes that structure a bit. So I, I wonder how, like, writing through these immigrant experiences, how aware you are of, of a certain kind of arc that those stories normally take and how you switch that around or play with that or set them up differently so we don't go on the journey that we often go on with these kind of stories. Right. Well, I, you know, Lacanio Hearn's story is an immigrant story, isn't it? He, he's an immigrant price over. And yet that's not how he is sort of uh, remembered in history necessarily. He's remembered as a Western expert. Mm -hmm. on the, you know, on the narratives, the folklore, ghost stories of Japan. And yet he clearly, by crossing geographical boundaries, borders, he is remembered for the positive that that brings with it, the crossing, right? His crossing was positive. While the crossing of so many people still today is considered a negative, a breaking of norms and laws. So I wanted, yes, I very much wanted to reshape and rethink Hearn and also the women in his life in terms of crossing boundaries and what Kern did it in a way that is, of course, clear and evident. You know, he he was brought as a child from the Ionian Islands to Ireland. He came as a young man to the U.S. 
And, you know, I also consider him a migrant. He lived first in Cincinnati, Ohio, and then went to New Orleans. But that move, that is a migration. Mm. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> right? right? And when he went to Japan, he lived in multiple cities, and those moves were also migrations. So, yes, I am very aware of how I wanted and to recast his story, mm. not simply as a traveler and an expert, but as an immigrant and a migrant and a border crosser. Mm. Fascinating. Well, thank you so much, Monique, for speaking to us about this wonderful book um, and about Hearn's story. Thank you for having me. We've been speaking with Monique Trong, and her latest novel is called The Sweetest Fruit. You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you like the show, leave us a comment and tell us what you think. The LARP Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is William Broughton. Production assistance is provided by William Broughton, Eleanor Duke, Lauren Kinney, and Jake Levins. Our theme song is by composer Imogen Teasley. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance and to Emerson College for the use of their studio in Hollywood. Tom Lutz is the publisher and editor-in-chief of the Los Angeles Review of Books. 